Hey crew, before we get started today, I want to let you know that our live episode recorded in front of a studio audience is currently available on our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash EISTpod. That is the rough video version of our panel on Star Trek 2009 from Convergence Con 2019 in the Twin Cities, which we did two weekends ago. It was a very fun time. It was uh, <laughs> like or hate JJ Trek. Uh, there's something for you in that show. Uh, a polished and edited version of that panel will soon be available in audio form. Joining the other live shows we've done from Convergence and other cons on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. If you like what you hear on that show, please consider becoming a crew member of our show and enjoying the services and privileges you would be thereby entitled to. We just got back from Shore Leave Con and wow, thereby hangs a tale or 12. Uh, a lot to report from Shore Leave, which we'll do in full on next week's supplemental episode. But suffice it here to say that we had an amazing time. Uh, thanks to the con organizers who really know what they're doing. We met a lot of incredible people, many of whom have been guests on this show. And joining their ranks today is Jim Johnson. I was glad to get a chance to meet Jim face to face. Jim is the line editor for the Star Trek Adventures RPG from Modifius. And he hosted a pair of panels about the line, and what they've got going on. And I got the itch now. Where's my dice? I'm thinking it's time to roll up a Starfleet officer. The thing is, I don't think anybody in my immediate role-playing circle plays uh, Star Trek RPG. So either I'm going to have to be a real evangelist for the game uh, and probably run it myself or try to get some kind of internet game going. I don't know. What do you think? Is Discord an option? Is Roll20 an option? Would you be interested in an internet game of Star Trek Adventures? Let's crowdsource this. Let me know what you think on Twitter at at EISTpod or on our Enterprising Interlocutions Facebook group or email the show at EISTpod at gmail.com. Fetch my dice. Let's roll. Hope you enjoy my talk with Jim. See you next week for a roundup of our shore leave experience. And with that, let's get underway. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I wanna know what you're thinking There are some things you can't hide I wanna know what you're feeling Tell me what's on your mind Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and I became caught in a temporal inversion, reappearing only sporadically to my son over the course of a century, until he finally died in my arms, and I was snapped back to the moment of my supposed death, and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. I'm joined in this episode by Jim Johnson. Jim is a writer and freelancer who has written several short stories set in the Star Trek universe. He's also the author of the Pistols and Pyramids series, as well as the Potomac Shadows series, and he's written for role-playing games set in the Star Trek, Lord of the Rings, and White Wolf universes. Jim, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me aboard. Permission to come aboard granted. Today we'll be talking about The Visitor, the second episode of the fourth season of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Any writer will tell you it's hard to write about writing, Except for Stephen King, that guy can turn out 100,000 words on anything. But most fiction about the production of fiction falls short, at least in this humble writer's opinion. The split second of inspiration, the countless hours of perspiration, the insecurity, the rejection, the flashes of megalomania, the leg cramps, all these aspects seem like good elements for drama, but they tend to be less than photogenic when put on the screen. There's a reason Satan shows up in the third act of Barton Fink, after all. Uh, spoilers for Barton Fink, by the way. The writers of Deep Space Nine, however, were game for a range of challenging and unorthodox story subjects. More than anything, they wanted to present stories and characters that had never before been seen in the Trek universe. And one of those characters was Jake Sisko. Jake was a character unlike any Trek had showcased previously. He was the son of a widower, he was a black teen in space, and he had no desire to follow in the military footsteps of his father. Instead, Jake wanted to be a writer, an artist, a profession that had never been explored on Trek before, despite the Federation's commitment to the humanities and self-exploration. But as an artist and as one of the truly civilian characters on DS9, the character of Jake served as one of our best windows into the humanity of the 24th century Federation citizen. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. 
I always ask new guests to the show about their backstory. How did you discover Star Trek and become a Star Trek fan? Oh my gosh, uh, Star Trek has been a lifelong love of mine. I think I started watching it back in the 70s. Uh, I had a little tiny four-inch black-and-white portable TV <laughs> uh-huh. that I had to put uh, tinfoil on the aerial in order to get any sort of reception. Yes. And I managed to watch a couple of reruns on that, and then you know, graduated to slightly larger televisions over the years, and just kept watching reruns of the original series, and it grew from there. It's funny how screens uh, started off so small, and we wanted them to be big, and now yeah. now we want screens to be small so they can be in our pockets. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You uh, is DS Nine your favorite series? Uh, by far, yeah. So I, I watched uh, Next Generation. Th- that was my college years, and uh, gosh, once and I loved Next Gen because I thought it was a. It really spoke to me in a lot of ways. Yeah. But once DS9 came out and I saw Emissary, that was just a whole new world of possibilities opened up. And, and part of that was also that was, you know, that was college days and um, just getting to understand more about the world and diversity and inclusion and different worldviews and that kind of stuff. I mean, DS9 really opened up a lot of questions and, and addressed different things that we hadn't seen in Star Trek yet, really. And uh, I just that, that series, more than any of the other ones, really spoke to me. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. And I'm sure you've seen the um, documentary recently, What We Left Behind. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I love the fact that they point out uh, how much... Th- how important that was to them and how they were exploring issues like that. And I think that that's a great aspect of the series. Uh, You describe yourself as an Egyptophile. Uh, What, (laughs) how would you describe an Egyptophile? What form does that take? Uh, So totally, totally amateur Egyptologist. So way, way, way back in the day I used to, you know, when I did, uh, when I was working in college, I worked at a at a bookstore, you know, Walden Books, way back. Oh that's yeah, dating, sure. Way back when, yeah, before it got bought by Borders. But um, so Walden Books, I was I was a assistant manager there, and I just spend my you know lunch hours in the day stocking books and going through the history section, and just got really uh, interested in ancient Egypt, Egypt's history, and just went on from there. And uh, at, at the time, you know, we didn't have. Uh, the internet, but we had microfiche and uh, <laughs> I could, uh, I could order a bunch of really old esoteric weird texts about ancient Egypt history. Sure. And so I'd special order those and get them. And uh, I've got a, a eclectic library of really like a mix of uh, commercially available and really deep scholarly texts about ancient Egypt. And it's just, it's always been a fascination of mine, which is funny because I hate the heat. I hate the, I hate the humidity <laughs> sure. and the, the dry heat. So I don't know if I'll ever actually make it to Egypt, but uh, I just, I love the culture and I love, I'm fascinated by the history and uh, just everything about it. And what really, really sparks my imagination is that ancient Egypt's culture was so old, like I mean, we're talking thousands and thousands of years, oh, yeah. that, that they had archaeologists working on ancient Egypt history. <laughs> it just boggles my mind. Like, you know, 2,000 years into it, they had people that were studying their own history from 1,000 years back. And it's just hard to to imagine the scope of a culture that lived on in some capacity for, you know, several thousand years. Yeah. I have to ask, and I think I know the answer. Have you played Assassin's Creed Origins? I did. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. that's. Uh, I haven't played an Assassin's Creed game in a while, but I had to check that one out. It's something that it... Uh, it really drove home for me was that point because the game is set d- during the Ptolemaic era, you know, um, around the time that Rome is sort of getting involved. But you look back and yeah, there's already ruins. Like things are already ruined. <laughs> Their culture has been around for, you know, 2,500 years. It's just it's yeah. mind boggling to think how old it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and for us here in the States, you know, we've only been around for 200 and something years. <laughs> yeah. We think that's a long time. But then you think about these cultures that have been around for thousands and thousands of years and you just... It kind of puts things in perspective. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. Uh, and that love helped you create your fiction series, Pistols and Pyramids, which is described as ancient Egyptian spaghetti western with magic and, of course, with mummies as well. Uh, what was yeah. the uh, inspiration behind that besides your love of Egypt? Uh, so, I mean, I already had the love of Egypt in, in ha- well in hand, and I'm a big fan of westerns, too. Mm. Uh, western, you know, Spaghetti westerns, uh, western TV series, all that stuff I grew up with. And, you know, that's a tie to Star Trek, too, because Star Trek was supposed to be wagon train, you know, in space. But uh, so just, uh, you know, doing a a mind mapping activity as a writer, I was thinking about all the different interests I have, you know, listing it out on uh, index cards, you know, just all the different interests I have. And then, you know, to be creative, you try to take those different interests and figure out ways to combine them. 
And I think one day I just pulled up ancient Egypt and Western. I was like, hey, how do I make ancient Egypt and Western work together in some sort of a storyline? And uh, threw it together and you know came up with the Pistols and Pyramids series. Yeah. And uh, it was a, a lot of fun to write, um, although I think um, it, it was kind of a hard grasp for a lot of readers to really dig into hmm. because it was it, it might have been a little too much of a secondary world and too much of a reach to have uh, ancient Egypt, you know, uh, ideas and, and religion and faith and uh, magic and stuff in a uh, weird Western set in a weird Western setting. So I, I may, may revisit it again someday, but I sure had fun working on it. Sure. And you would describe it as weird West then. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I love Westerns too. And I also really like weird West uh, fiction as well because Many Westerns are, you know, they're about frontier fiction and they're about defending your values, you know, against the unknown. But I like Weird West because it sort of digs into that weirder side. And it's really weird when you think about it. Somebody who lives in a city and then gets on a horse and goes out in the middle of nowhere and there's strange creatures and there's harsh environments. And I think that that suits itself so well to... Uh, you know, Lovecraftian horrors or, or strange animal uh, spirits or something like that. I'm surprised that there aren't more Weird West tales. Yeah, I am too. Because I, I love I love reading Weird West, and I just don't see enough of it on the shelves. And, uh, I, you know, the advice is if, if you don't see the book that you want to read, <laughs> then you have to write it you yourself. Write it, right. <laughs> so uh, I, I took that philosophy to heart. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a writer and a line editor on Star Trek Adventures as well, the Star Trek role-playing game from Modiphius. How did you get involved yes. with that? Uh, so the, boy, this goes back quite a ways. So in the early 2000s, I was a freelance writer and playtest coordinator for the Lord of the Rings role-playing game oh. that Decipher was doing at the time. Sure. And Decipher also had the license to Star Trek at the time. And one of the fellow writers and um, playtest coordinators I worked with was a guy named Jason Dural. And Jason is the line manager for the Conan game that Modiphius does right now. And a few years back, uh, he, he and I kept touch over the years. And yeah, a couple of years ago, he reached out to me and said, hey, uh, Modiphius just picked up a really great license. And I can't tell you what it is, but you should send your CV to Modiphius because uh, I think you'll be interested. And so I was curious and I trust him. So I did it. And they said, well, we got the Star Trek license. Do you want to work on it? And I was like, yes, of course. And uh, it just went on from there. And um, just in the years of being a writer and connecting with other writers, um, I had a lot of uh, friends that are in the in the business to one degree or another, and I was able to bring some additional contacts with me to Modiphius that really helped us um, establish the line and give us a lot of or give CBS a lot of confidence in what we're doing. Yeah, and uh, we've just you know rolled on from there. Well, that's great. Your friend couldn't have said uh, they're going to boldly go, but I can't tell you what it is though. But you should definitely check it out. You know, I, I think the first message he sent to me, he may have signed off with Live Long and Prosper. Okay, all right, there you go. Yeah, that's what you need. <laughs> I don't remember. I'd have to pull it up. But there was some sort of code in the in the email that made it clear to me what he was talking <laughs> about, even though he couldn't directly tell me because I hadn't signed an NDA yet. Right, right. Uh, yeah. I used to play the Last Unicorn uh, games back in the day, uh, and uh -huh. had a lot of fun with those. Mostly because I came mostly from a you know twenty sided D and D combat based thing, and my mm -hmm. friends and I really enjoyed the um, the different the sort of skill based storytelling aspects of the Last mm -hmm. Unicorn games. Yeah, we uh, my group uh, we we started off with the FASA version, mm -hmm. and uh, we we liked the concept, but we really we did a lot of house house brewing house yeah, rules sure. to it. Um, and played that way for a while. And then when the Last Unicorns version came out, we played that a lot and really loved it. Uh, and then, of course, Last Unicorn got bought by Wizards of the Coast. We tried out Wizards of the Coast. Well, actually, Wizards of the Coast didn't do anything with it. But the team went on to Decipher and, and did the, the Decipher version of the game, right. which, uh, which I thought was good. But it felt a little too close to D20 for my, for my tastes. Mm. Um, and then once Decipher collapsed, uh, the Star Trek license for RPGs just kind of just sat there for 14, 15 years <laughs> and nobody picked it up as far as I, as I can remember. Yeah. And then finally Modiphius came along and picked it up. But, uh, it, it's just nice to see it's been, it's getting some love now and it's been, you know, a long time since we've had a, a Star Trek license on the, on the RPG side. For sure. What sets the Modiphius system apart from the FASA or the earlier games? Um, well, <laughs> I mean, uh, to, to be silly, uh, we, we don't have that many skills. Okay. Like if you remember last unicorn and FASA and to some extent decipher, they had a very long skill list, yes. um, and a lot of specializations within those skills. We've, we've narrowed it down to just six 
uh, disciplines that match the departments of the of the show. So you got you know sure. uh, command, medicine, sciences, engineering, medical, and um, I think that simplifies it in a lot of ways because it, it's not quite so. You, you don't have such a huge complex list of stuff to look at on the character sheet. Yeah. Uh, so that, but we've also we really focused the story on the storytelling aspect and on uh, a character's values and what what you know what what is it. What makes that character tick? Why is this character different from another character? Yeah. And, um, you know, why are they in Starfleet? What is their perspective on life? You know, we really try to get into the social conflict and the social interactions. And, of, of course, combat's a, a piece of it, but we really focus more on the, um, like, the, the social aspect and the drama that's inherent in the, uh, in the TV show. That's really great. And I think that's really important to Star Trek storytelling. I remember that the last Unicorn system had a function where you could take... Uh, disadvantages to gain extra character creation points and of mm -hmm. course if you're not careful your players will go nuts abusing that so we all ended up with like these emotionally broken supermen who could do <laughs> anything but would be yeah, yeah. really distraught <laughs> about it yeah well can you talk about your you mentioned your short story work before um how did you uh end up submitting to strange new worlds oh that's a, okay yeah so uh, um gosh in the 90s i was uh, i was uh, just out of college and i was heavily involved in community theater because I needed I needed something to do with my free time. Because sure. uh, all of a sudden I was graduated from college, I was working full time. But I was like, I, I've got all this free time now. What do I do with it? Yeah. And so uh, I joined a local theater group, and one of my friends in that theater group was also an up and coming writer, hmm. and he submitted some short stories to uh, the Strange New Worlds contest that Simon and Schuster ran uh, at the time. They ran it for a total of ten years, but at the time they were running it, and basically it followed the tradition of. Um, the TV shows where they would open up to spec scripts from fans, from you know anybody who could write a spec script, you could send it into Paramount, and they would look at it, and you know most of the time they would just reject you outright. But sometimes if they thought there was something promising, they would invite you in for uh, you know for pitch uh, sessions. Sure. But so anyway, so my friend uh, Kevin Summers, he wrote a short story called Isolation Ward Four, and it got published in one of the Star Trek anthologies. And I was like, well, gosh, you know. If you can do it, why not? Why not take a shot at it? So I started writing short stories and fired them off to uh, to the contest. And just over the course of uh, several years, I managed to get three of them published, which was you know incredibly gratifying to be able to uh, contribute a little tiny piece to the to the big huge uh, Star Trek uh, tapestry. Yeah, uh, and that led to a, you know I was able to get some contacts with Simon and Schuster and. Uh, worked with a couple of the editors there and, and got invited to write another short story for a, one of the anthologies, one of the mirror universe anthologies. And uh, right about the same time they were starting to cut back on their novel line. So instead of doing two mass market releases every month, they dropped it to one mm -hmm. release a month. And by doing that, they had to really change how they were um, approaching what writers they were going to get for those books. So there was a period of time where they were, willing to try out newer writers on, on novels because they were doing so many novels in, in a given year. Right. But right about the time I was pitching novel ideas to them, they had to cut back. Mm. And uh, so I didn't get an opportunity to, uh, to write a novel, which is too bad. Um, but, uh, you know, I found other ways to, uh, to scratch the, the Star Trek itch, yeah. as it were. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, why did you choose this specific episode, The Visitor, to discuss today? So Visitor, I, you know, when I watched DS9 on first run, you know, back in the 90s now, it, it was a really great episode that really resonated with me at the time just because it was so different from what Star Trek had generally done in the past where you didn't see a lot of episodes really focused on family relationships, father, son, mother, daughter, that kind of thing. Yeah. And the, I mean, the, the acting and the music and the direction, I mean, everything was just so good in this episode. It all came together really nicely. And it really, you know, pulls on the heartstrings. I was in, you know, I, when I saw it the first time around, I was in tears watching it because it was just so, so well done. Yeah. I thought Tony Todd did just a brilliant, brilliant job <laughs> yeah. of, uh, of acting a, an elder Jake Sisko. Yeah. So that is, you know, all of that is just enough of a reason to, to watch it. But now, you know, I have a three-year-old and I've only just recently watched this episode again and I hadn't watched it since before he was born and then he got born and now there's a whole nother layer to the story that that really impacted me differently because now that i'm a father and i have a son and uh you know there's that whole additional layer of relationship that uh um i, I am now aware of so it, it hit me in, and i was in tears again watching it but it just hit me in just a whole different way because now there's just that whole other piece to it to uh, to think about yeah 
I talk to a lot of writers on this show, and I'm an aspiring writer myself. And of, of course, mm -hmm. all this fiction that we love uh, consuming is created by writers. So I'm fascinated by the decision to make the character of Jake Cisco a writer. And and I know that the show isn't, uh, you know, Deep Space Nine author's corner, but I always kind <laughs> of regret that they didn't get a chance to do more with the character and his ambitions uh, in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was funny, too, with uh, with Visitor. They they used a aspiring writer as kind of the the character to help Jake kind of yeah. get get some of the dialogue going back and forth to explain things. Yeah. I, I just thought it was great because, uh, you know, having been a writer for a while now, I, you know, I've spent my time on plenty of discussion forums uh, of writers and prospective writers. And like everything she's saying is exactly what new prospective writers say, <laughs> sure. you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, I haven't actually written anything yet, but I've done a lot of reading and I'm thinking about what I want to say and all this and this. And I'm like, yeah, I, and of course, you know, when I was first starting out writing, I was saying the same thing too, but yeah. the, it's just funny how clearly the, the episode was written by a writer who knows writers <laughs> yeah. and, and knows what we say and knows how we think. And it's like, yeah, you totally, totally identified with it. Yeah. As far as Jake goes, it, it's sort of like the situation with Wesley on TNG, I think. Not just because they're teenage boys, but the conversation surrounding Wesley is always that he's going to be a great man someday. You know, He's going to be a great Starfleet officer. I can't wait to see the man he becomes. And I mm -hmm. feel like Jake's writing, you know, unfortunately, and it's because of the Dominion War storyline, but it gets relegated to that same trope. Like, we keep getting told that he'll be great, but, you know, we never really see him get there. Yeah, they, they, they talk about it a little bit here and there when they talk about how uh, his novel Anselm uh, does well. Yeah. And uh, and then he wrote that set of collected stories and that wins some sort of award. Um, and there was a couple episodes that focused on him as a writer. But I mean, obviously, yes, they could have certainly done a lot more. But, you know, when you have a when you have a a cast of nine and then, you know, a deep pool of recurring characters that you have to service as well. It's just, it's hard to balance everything. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I would have loved to have seen more with Jake. I'm happy with what they did with him, but certainly could have done more. Yeah. yeah. But I, I did appreciate that they turned him into a reporter though, during the war. Young boy becomes a writer or gigantic intergalactic war between the dominion and the Federation. I know what the audience would want there. <laughs> well, we are talking about the DS9 episode, The Visitor. It is the second episode of the fourth season. It first aired on October 9th of 1995, and it was written by Michael Taylor, who was a writer on four episodes of DS9 in total. He also wrote the teleplay for In the Pale Moonlight, and he got his start as a freelancer for the show. Uh, after DS9, he became a staff writer on Star Trek Voyager, and he wrote and contributed to 20 different episodes for that show. Uh, he was also a writer and co-executive producer on the Battlestar Galactica reboot, Caprica, Defiance, Turn and Into the Badlands. And also I should mention that writer-producer Renee Echevarria also did an uncredited rewrite on this episode. Uh, nice. The episode was directed by David Livingston, who, as you can imagine, I've talked about so much, I've run about run out of things to say about him, but I'll remind listeners that he is still, at 62 episodes, the most prolific director in the Star Trek franchise. There's no star date given for this episode, but it takes place at various points, uh, 2372, 2373, 2389, 2408, 2422, and ends in the future at 2450. And your assignment, Jim, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of The Visitor. Gee, uh, Ben Sisko and Jake are on the Defiant on a, if I remember right, unspecified mission. There is a crisis in the engineering room. Ben and Jake go to try to fix it. They fix it, but a subspace anomaly creates a subspace tether between the two of them. Sisko was thrown into a subspace pocket. I've lost count of how many words I'm at. <laughs> um, Jake lives his life with Ben suspended in subspace. Ben is able to, uh, uh, the uh, the subspace tether occasionally brings Ben into Jake's timeline. So where years pass for Jake, only a few moments pass for Ben. Ben gets to see his son grow up, grow old. And um, uh, Jake discovers this. And because Jake cannot let go because he loves his dad so much, he uh, changes his career path from writer to uh, astrophysicist. He figures out a way to get his father back but in so doing has to make a, a critical decision that I don't want to spoil if you haven't seen it yet in the 20 some years. Oh yeah. Um, and hopefully maybe we'll give a spoiler tag later on if people don't want to get spoiled yeah. about that. Uh, that was great. That was very complete. It's always a vain task <laughs> to ask a writer to summarize because they want to give the, the whole set of beats and everything. And I understand that. Right. Right. Yeah. Here's some interesting facts from the, our memory banks about this episode. Apparently Michael Taylor had based the idea of the episode. Uh, and I hadn't heard this story. Uh, on the story of a fan um, 
visiting uh, a writer, in this case, um, the real story of a young journalist who scored an interview with the famously reclusive J.D. Salinger. Uh, Apparently, she just wrote him and showed up on his doorstep. And he's like, yeah, okay." Mm -hmm. Before Michael Taylor became a full time writer on Trek and a writing partner of Ronald D. Moore, uh, fans assumed that his name was a pseudonym for the combination of Michael Piller and Jerry Taylor. Uh, because the script was so good and so emotional. And of course, Michael Taylor was an unknown freelancer at this time. So people assumed that it was either a joke or it signified a collaboration between producer-writers Taylor and Pillar. I had mentioned earlier that uh, Rene Echevarria rewrote the episode. And after doing so, he expressed disappointment that Chief O'Brien had to be cut from the episode due to shooting conflicts in Colomini's schedule. And in fact, the next episode in season four, Hippocratic Oath, was actually shot before this episode to accommodate that schedule. Um, I didn't know what I to think when I heard this, but apparently concept artist John Eaves, uh, who's worked on DS9, Enterprise, Discovery, and many of the Star Trek films, based the design for Jake's house on the Haunted Mansion in Disneyland. Mm. Have you ever been to the Haunted Mansion in Disneyland? Uh, a number of times, yeah. And I, I wouldn't have made that connection. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was weird. But, you know, I have a copy of the... Uh... Um, I, and I'm sure you do too. The DS9 Companion, mm-hmm. uh, which is a which is a wealth of information, and there's actually a picture of the uh, of the um, of Jake's house in there. Okay. And it, you know, it, I don't think it's in the text. It didn't occur to me to even think that that's based on the Haunted Mansion. So, hey, great factoid. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, the characters of old Jake and Melanie are seen again in the Prophecy and Change anthology from Pro- uh, Pocket Books. The frame story of the collection sees Melanie visit Jake in the real timeline of the show once he is an elderly, accomplished writer, and he tells her stories of his youth that make up the stories in the anthology. And Jake will eventually start to write Anselm in the main timeline episode in the uh, episode The Muse. The Muse. I'm trying to – is that the one where uh, Jake uh, gets involved with someone and she's got like uh, – Yeah, she, she, yeah she massages his head and suddenly he can write. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, don't remember loving it, but you know it's DS9 so I can't hate it. It's a, yeah, <laughs> it's an interesting one. Uh, the Star Trek Vanguard series of novels uh, also features a 23rd century journalist named Tim Pennington, after whom the Pennington School is presumably named. And there is a real boarding school in New Jersey called the Pennington School. The American writer and journalist Stephen Crane attended the Pennington School. Crane will be obliquely referenced again in the season five episode, Nor the Battle to the Strong, as that episode heavily references Crane's seminal work, The Red Badge of Courage. All the future Starfleet uniforms and com badges in this episode uh, are the same as as are seen in the future segments of All Good Things, and I believe in Endgame as well. And as we are uh, getting ready for the debut of Picard here, I was wondering if they would try to stick to that sort of design aesthetic we see in All Good Things, these kind of monochrome uh, you know, future uh, Starfleet uniforms with this new insignia. And I know mm-hmm. that it's a financial thing, but, you know, whenever we see future flashes in DS9, they're wearing them. Uh, they use them in Voyager as well. So, like I said, I know it's economic, but it seems like a real commitment to uh, a unified design uh, going forward. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see if how, how closely they, they do that. I know that, I, I didn't look at it too closely. I know somebody online has had done an extensive analysis sure, of yeah. like, one or two still shots from Picard analyzing the uniforms and like on the one hand it's great that they're doing it but you know we only have like a one or two still shots to work from it's yeah, a little it's not much to get too excited but yeah you know we fans we can't help it so we got to analyze we have to dig in I, I would think that CBS has the budget to do all new uniforms if they wanted to but it would be a nice callback if they did do something that was reminiscent of the future style uniforms that we've I, seen already I agree uh, let's talk about our guest stars for this episode. There's a couple. Uh, Tony Todd plays the adult Jake in this episode. Todd has had a long and successful career in film and television. He, of course, played the titular character in the film Candyman and its two sequels. And he's appeared in other films such as Platoon, Lean on Me, The Crow, The Rock. And he has a rec- recurring role as CI director Graham on the NBC series Chuck. He's also the voice of Professor Zoom on the CW's The Flash. And he's also played Kern, of course, the brother of Worf on TNG and DS9. And I believe he was an alpha herogen in a Voyager episode, um, yep. episode Prey, yes. I was surprised to find out, I didn't know this, that he had auditioned six times for TNG before being cast as Kern. And he was apparently one of the actors who was considered for the role of Benjamin Sisko when DS9 was being developed. I have to wonder how... I mean, the show would have been different for sure, but I wonder how it would be different. 
Yeah, hard to say. I mean, I, I know obviously um, um, Avery Brooks just brings a ton to the role, yes. and uh, Tony Todd's certainly an accomplished actor in his own right. But it's always fun to play those what if games, right? To to wonder, you know, how how would he have made it work over seven seasons of uh, of long nights and long days of work? And yeah, uh, right, yeah. I was uh, on a previous episode. I was talking with a guest about uh, the actor Kevin Peter Hall, who plays um, he plays an alien in the episode "The Price" TNG. He's a very right. tall man, uh, about seven feet tall, and apparently he was in the running at some point for both um, Jordy LaForge and uh, the character of Data before the actors uh, that they picked were decided on. And oh, I was just thinking, yeah, like first of all, like Jordy LaForge. Seven foot tall guy trying to climb through those Jeffrey tubes. That would have been rough. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. then also like if you pick, you know, he's a great actor, but if you pick like a large guy, you are setting your, um, your Android character apart. You're making him more alien, you know? So mm-hmm. I wonder if they would be going with more of maybe a, a Frankenstein type thing. Cause of course, Frankenstein in the novel is described as, you know, being of gigantic proportion. Right. But I think they made the right choice to make him very human as, as Brett Spiner is. I also learned that uh, when researching for this, that uh, Tony Todd's aunt, who had raised him as a child, had died just three months before they started shooting this episode. So um, he talked about how it, you know, absent family members were on his mind and it was uh, very affecting for him. Interesting. Interesting. I'm confident that played into, I mean, boy, I I, I respect Tony Todd so much as an actor because he had to cry in almost every scene he was in (laughs) during The Visitor. And, you know, I, I haven't had an opportunity as an amateur actor to do a lot of uh, really dramatic scenes like that. So I just have to imagine he had to really pull deep from personal experience to, to generate that on, on cue, you know, on take after take after take over the, the week and a half or whatever they had to film it. So I just, I'm impressed that he, he was able to pull that together so, so frequently. I mean, yeah. obviously that's why they get paid to, to <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> be actors because that's what they do. That's their job. Yeah. But uh, yeah. just so impressive to watch it just seemed to be so effortless and so, so real when he uh, when he performed it. Yeah, I'm sure it was on his mind. He also spoke about how it was an inspiration for him as well that he could kind of almost feel her whispering to him, you know, that he needed to get back to work, you know, and and, and do his job. So, uh-huh. uh huh. Rachel Robinson appears in this episode as Melanie, the aspiring writer. And if her surname sounds familiar, it should. She's the daughter of Garrick actor Andrew Robinson and his wife Irene. She was also apparently a leading candidate for the role of Esri Dax in season seven. And she only has a few TV and film credits in the 2000s. Um, I don't think that she is active in acting currently, but she is a singer-songwriter, and her last album came out in 2015. And Galen Gorg appears as Karina. Gorg is an actress and dancer with many TV credits to her name. She had a recurring role as Nancy O'Reilly in the second season of Twin Peaks. She also had guest roles on Xena Warrior Princess, Stargate SG-1, The A-Team, uh, Lost, Parks and Rec, and many more. In Star Trek Extended Media, Karina and Jake would be married in the main timeline, and the character appears in the tie-in novels Rough Beasts of Empire, Raise the Dawn, and The Good That Men Do. So let's get into the meat of the episode. This is a very well-loved episode of DS9 by both fans and the staff of the show. Uh, Avery Brooks and Sirik Lofton have both said it's one of their favorite episodes. Uh, I think David Livingston, the director, said uh, it was the best piece of material he's ever been able to direct in terms of the script. And in a 1996 issue of TV Guide, it was voted by fans as the best Star Trek show ever, which apparently really shocked TV Guide. Uh, They were surprised that, you know, at the time in 1996, the quote unquote least popular incarnation of Star Trek had produced the most popular show. Uh, Uh Little did they know how DS9 would be viewed uh, 20, 25 years later. And TV Guide itself ranked the uh, the episode as the 10th best Star Trek episode uh, for their celebration of the franchise's 30th anniversary. So again, it's and this comes through in that DS9 documentary, just the idea that you never know exactly how something is going to be embraced over time. Um, part of the documentary, for people who haven't seen it, involves the actors reading these, you know, sort of poison pen letters from fans, uh, I assume from the time, about how this is a violent, Gene wouldn't have wanted this, nobody, you know, wants a show like this, you're supposed to boldly go. And of course, now it's seen as one of the best and most influential series ever. Mm-hmm. I wonder if... You know, in another 10 years or so, people will say that about Enterprise. I don't know. That's a good question. So Enterprise, I think, has a little bit of a stigma on it because yeah. it was canceled, you know, midway through right after the fourth season. Yeah. Um, it didn't end on a great note. I think uh, the, 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 the series finale could have maybe been different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause 
it was really more of a next gen episode with uh, with the Enterprise guest stars in it, which was unfortunate. But uh, the the episode right before the finale w- was a more effective send off for the series, I think. I agree. Um, yeah. So that's unfortunate. But you know, I, actually, I was just talking to some of my some of my fellow uh, RPG writers. Um, Enterprise had probably the best setting of all the series, just in terms of a story- storytelling standpoint, and especially from a gaming standpoint, because you've got this great pre-Federation setting. You've still got you know ships going out there boldly, boldly exploring, yeah. but you've got a whole different slate of possibilities in terms of your relationships with the Klingons and the Romulans and all the different aliens that you can bring into it. Yeah. Transporters are kind of a chancy um, <laughs> yeah. technology. Right. So you really have to rely on the shuttles to get you from planet to planet to ship. And it just it's just a different, very different feel. And for those of us that are big into the space program, you know, the U.S. and international space program, that that idea of astronauts going out and exploring and, and really trying to make the best of it without a, a, a prime directive really to operate from. You're just trying to make the best of it as best you can and trying not to make too many mistakes or make too many enemies. Um, I think it just brings a really fresh approach to uh, to Star Trek, which I, I do appreciate quite a bit, especially as a storyteller. Yeah. Um, so I, I think. Enterprise had so much potential, and uh, I, d- I just wish it could have gone on for at least another season or two, so that we could have seen the the Federation Romulan War and see how that yeah. worked out. Yeah, you know, that, but uh, yeah. we, we didn't have the opportunity. That would have been fascinating. I always I, I love in Star Trek the balance between convenience and danger that they experience because it is the final frontier. You know, it is space. We we aren't really supposed to be out there, but we're doing it anyway. But at the same time, we like it when our characters can order a chocolate sundae, you know, from the replicator. <laughs> so you want to have a little of both of those. And I, I, I like the emphasis um, of that uh, in uh, Enterprise. I like Discovery, too, but it does seem like after 50 years of the show, we do want to see our characters have amazing technology. And so there are all these things that they can do that's like shouldn't that be a little tougher to do yeah this episode was nominated for an emmy award for outstanding makeup uh but the award that year was actually won by threshold from voyager which i think is fair uh it was also nominated for a hugo award for best dramatic presentation uh but lost to the babylon 5 episode the coming of shadows there is a lot going on in this episode um you know the and the frame story makes it seem innocuous and sort of low-key and the emotions in it are definitely contemplative but as far as the events, like we're seeing quite a bit happen on screen with a lot of ramifications that you know ultimately right. are reset, but are still big shifts. Uh, Cisco, mm-hmm. quote unquote, dies. Bajor allies himself with Cardassia. Uh, the Klingons take over the station. Nog becomes a captain. And I guess the Dominion War never happens at all. Yeah, that was interesting because this this comes out right after Way of the Warrior, where the Klingons are, are getting to be a big presence. And. I guess the Dominion War hadn't really started heating up yet. So, like, they were aware of the Dominion, but they didn't really focus on the Dominion in The Visitor. Yeah. So I, I guess maybe the maybe the Klingons coming to more prominence and, uh, and Bajor aligning with them, maybe that changed the relationship between uh, the Dominion and the Alpha Quadrant to where it was less of a factor. You know, maybe, maybe Cisco disappearing um, changed that dynamic to some extent. Yeah, I mean, clearly he's instrumental in there being a war and us winning it, uh, us right. being the Federation in this case. Um, but yeah, you have to imagine that it just goes on in this long period of detente and would probably be a negative environment, you know, like in Eastern Europe under um, under the uh, Soviet Union, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it is interesting to see how one man can influence um, so much of, of destiny. Right. And of course, he is a, a destined figure. This episode is kind of like DS9's version of Inner Light, you know, but it's also sort of their Yesterday's Enterprise, too. Uh, Yesterday's Enterprise. Well, I don't know. I definitely agree with the Inner Light because you get to see a, a whole life lived. Yeah. Um, that is ultimately erased. But then you, you know that there's still an impact because like Jake doesn't remember anything that happened but cisco does yeah and i i wish that was a piece of this of the episode that i wish they had found a way to tie into at some point later in the series because because like cisco lives the next three three and a half seasons knowing what jake did right to or what that future jake did to to keep him together and it would have been nice to have seen some sort of touchstone to that maybe near the finale where you know cisco knows he's got to go to the fire caves and uh and leave everybody behind but uh um, it was interesting because the visitor it kind of felt like 
you know, Jake had this whole journey through the episode, but who that 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 journey really impacted Cisco more than it impacted anybody else. And I just I thought that was a great way to kind of pull do kind of do a pull around there right at the very end. Yeah, it is. It's different because Jake is the one that like the inner light. Jake is the one that grows old, but Cisco is the one that's ultimately changed by what happens. Right. right. Uh, no flute though this time. Uh, I should say, uh, and I might get in trouble because I've heard uh, Keith DeCandido say that if a person doesn't like the visitor, uh, they have no soul and he has nothing to say to them. <laughs> I I like the visitor, but I don't love the visitor. Um, I do think that it's probably uh, one of the best episodes of DS9. Uh, DeCandido also points out a few reasons why the episode shouldn't work at all, specifically that there's... You know, there's a sort of lame techno babble element that gets it all started. Um, it ends uh, with no consequences, you know, in, in a reset. And a guest actor is at the center of the show, which is usually mm-hmm. a no-no. In fact, as a freelancer, this must have been a hell of a script from Taylor because you're generally instructed not to write anything with a huge guest part, you know, or guest characters, um, even if they did get Tony Todd ultimately. Right. And if I remember right, didn't they have... Um, um... Sirak often uh, auditioned for the for or not audition but try out and they they just felt that Tony Todd was a stronger choice oh, for the do. adult parts. Yeah, I don't know about that, but I, I'd imagine that they would probably give him a shot. Yeah, yeah. Although if I remember right, Tony Todd did spend a lot of time studying uh, Sirak Lofton's performances and tried to bring some of his <laughs> he, mannerisms into and he the. Does, he nails it too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, he did and did a great great job with it. Yeah. Those are the little things that kind of just bother me about the episode. I mean, it's not enough to like, I mean, I still enjoy it, but I wish that it could have been more integrated with the main cast. Yeah. And again, because I just recently rewatched it. Yeah. It, you know, being being 20 years later and, and society has changed a little bit and the Internet has changed a little bit. You know, it's it's funny that uh, you just take some things for granted in, in the Star Trek universe where this, uh, you know, this aspiring young writer girl kind of like wanders through the bayou in the middle of the night in a rainstorm <laughs> shows up at this guy's house and he like invites her in and it's like yeah it's no big deal it's okay nothing's gonna no, nothing freaky is gonna happen nothing weird's gonna happen to this these, to these people it's yeah. like the, this uh total jake cisco stan comes into the house and is like i've been you know i've been following your work for your whole career or, you know your whole two whole two books and I, now i found your house and now i'm coming in and yeah, right <laughs> yeah for, for the more cynical world that we live in now you might look at that kind of like side side eye and go okay what's going to happen here this isn't a you know a, a touching story this could be you know, this could turn into a horror show in rapid succession yeah. depending on how you it. <laughs> and it's set you in know? the haunted mansion so <laughs> yeah and, and it's in a haunted mansion <laughs> yeah i, I don't what, it is what's it, gonna happen here it's an interesting element i don't think that they intended to play anything with it at all but yeah yeah yeah. when picard dies quote unquote in tapestry like q is there to meet him in the afterlife and by the time of of his death um you know when the at the end of the episode he's stabbed the changes are reset the way picard views those events that happened to him are recontextualized you know in a new way um and i wish that something like i mean i don't want them to do tapestry again but something like that could uh, be a more a part of this episode. Like you mentioned that like, you know, we see how that affects Cisco's behavior going forward. Mm-hmm. It's a little standalone for me. Star Trek has done a good job with, with some standalones that have a lasting impact. But uh, yeah, I, I agree with you that I, I wish, and, and with uh, Keith, I guess, uh, to Canada, that, that it would have been nice to have seen some more ripple effects from it going into the series itself, as opposed to just being a really nice, standalone and i think that's what what sets it up what sets it apart from um um oh shoot you know what i just blanked on it the 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 later season ds9 episode where they uh they address the the racial inequality where the cisco going back in time as a writer far beyond the stars uh far beyond the stars right where that actually has some uh ripples in the series because they they keep referencing the the benny russell character yeah, yeah. a couple times especially in the seventh season and, and so it's not just a good standalone, you know, landmark episode. It actually has ties to the rest of the series. Um, I wish they could have found a way to do that with Visitor a little bit more. I, you know, I don't know where you would have done it other than to, uh, um, you know, have the Jake and uh, Ben Cisco dynamic work a little differently with Ben knowing what Jake did and is capable of doing if something like that were to happen again. Yeah. And that's the that's the core of the episode, really. Yeah. I'm not I'm here to praise and not bury it, of course. Mm-hmm. It really is an impressive hour of the show. I love particularly that the centerpiece of the show is the love between a parent and a child. It's not 
the right. romantic connection, which we've seen before. And it works specifically because of how much DS9 is committed to the life of these characters, Cisco mm-hmm. and Jake and their bond. You could theoretically do an episode like this about a Dr. Crusher and Wesley, but it, it wouldn't have the same resonance. Or you could do it about, I don't know, Janeway and her dog or something, but it wouldn't be the same. Yeah, and, and I know that uh, uh, Avery Brooks has has mentioned a number of times in a lot of your interviews over the years that it was really important to him to to portray a positive um, uh, father son relationship, especially with a with, you know with a brown relation, you know brown uh, man brown woman, because the I guess the cultural stigma is that um, a lot of brown men or black men don't always hang around. Uh, to watch their kids grow up for whatever, you know, whatever many number of reasons. Mm. Uh, and to, to see a, a positive version of that on television was really important to him. Yeah. And it's clear, especially in this episode, you just you get to see that dynamic that you don't see a lot on television. I've heard um, Avery Brooks speak before about the fact that a lot of just, you know, in the mid 90s, DS9 was basically... Um, in a lot of ways, a show about a black family. And there are many scenes where there are only black actors uh, on the screen. And looking at any other sci-fi show, you're not seeing that at that time. Uh, Exactly, yeah. Well, I don't think I've ever really delved into the character of Jake on this show before. What do you think about Jake as a character? Um, I I like Jake uh, partly because uh, Jake, I, I like him there because it really does give us a chance to explore that that family dynamic that we don't see a lot on TV. I think they tried to do it with uh, crushers with the crushers on uh, next gen. Yeah. Um, but I think they had a different set of writers on DS nine who probably did a superior job of focusing on that relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, even in like the first couple of seasons, they would have uh, just a couple of uh, not, not throwaway scenes, but just like quick scenes where you got Cisco dealing with something, but he stops off at, at the, at their quarters and Jake is there and they have a nice little father son relationship, right. a little moment there, yeah. and it's just, you know, a couple of nice beats and then they go on with the rest of the plot, but you still got those beats in there that reminded you that not only is he the commander of the station, but he's also a father and he's managing this, this whole relationship with his son at the same time. Yeah. And uh, so, so for Jake to be there in that role, I thought was great. I thought it was great that he was best friends with Nog for, for the whole course of the series and that we got to see Nog. I think Nog uh, became a really key uh, character in the series. And a lot of that is because of his relationship with Jake. Yeah. Right. I just don't think you would have focused on Nog as much if he didn't have Jake there to be, um, to be played off against. Yeah. So um, I just, I, I think Nog, obviously between the two, Jake and Nog, I think Nog had the stronger character arc from beginning to end of the series, but I think Jake had plenty to do. And uh, I think he got lost a little bit in the seventh season. I wish there had been more for him to do. Mm-hmm. But at that point, they were juggling so many, so many characters and so many storylines that it was yeah. probably hard to focus on everybody fairly. But uh, I think um, you know he had a, he had a good run. And uh, again, I would have liked to have seen more. But um, I, I enjoyed. And, you know, as a writer, I enjoyed it. And I think one of the smart things the writers did for the show is that they didn't put Jake in Starfleet because I think that would have been a little yeah. bit too much like the Wesley Crusher story. Yeah. Like I feel like maybe they knew that they'd done that already in Next Gen and they wanted to go a different route. Yeah. So playing with the idea of, oh, you know, maybe his son doesn't decide to join Starfleet and chooses something else. How does that impact Cisco? And then, yeah. of course, we had that episode where Cisco's like, oh, you're not going to join Starfleet? Oh, I'm surprised. But at the same time, he's surprised and maybe a little disappointed, but he's also, you know, willing to support his son in whatever he chooses to do. And, and that's a meaningful you know, parenting moment there is that you uh, you want what's best for your children and maybe the path that you think is going to be right for them is something they don't pick. And yeah. that's OK. Right. You know, you just uh, you, you work with it. Yeah. I think there's a whole spinoff series with him as uh, Jake Sisko, Dominion War Reporter. <laughs> that that would be an awesome miniseries if they were ever to do yeah. something like that. <laughs> I've really warmed to Jake over the years, and I've really come to appreciate the work of Sirik Lofton, who grew as an actor by leaps and bounds as the show went yeah. on and puts in a fantastic performance in this episode. It's a fairly common trope, not just, not just in sci-fi, where a character wants to be a writer or a creator, and we see them struggle with the process. And they're often, you know, buildings, Roman stories. Uh, you know, the portrait of an artist as a young man comes to mind, although that's probably one of the greatest examples in the genre. As a writer, what's your general impression of stories about writing? Do they get the writing parts right? The the ones that I can think of, sure. I mean, there's always that. I mean, there's always that conceit, though, right? Because like every every movie and every TV show about a writer is written by a writer, so right, it's kind right. of like it's kind of, 
you know, we're, we're preaching to the choir, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but like, uh, uh, you know, th- even throw mama from the train, the classic with uh, <laughs> uh, Crystal and Danny DeVito, yeah. that, that is all about writing. And like, there's so much truth in there. If you're a writer, you can identify with both characters completely. Yeah. And uh, obviously a writer wrote it. And, you know, all of this, you know, internal angst that we carry with us as writers <laughs> just finds its way onto the page and then out into the screen. And then, you know, the, I'm sure the, the, uh, the actors, you know, they have their own set of angsts that they carry with them. And, and I'm sure they find ways to identify with it because it's all shared misery to some extent. Yeah, the misery <laughs> and the angst are good. Uh, yeah. yeah, those are true uh, focuses. I feel like those stories are some of them emphasize inspiration far too heavily. You know, I saw this thing or I kissed this girl and now the words are flowing out of me. Get me a pen. Come on. If you haven't banged your head against a desk for an hour straight, you're not a writer. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, they mentioned that in The Visitor where uh, uh, the uh, the Melanie, the, Melanie's the writer character, right? Yeah, Melanie says, uh, oh, you know, I'm just I'm just waiting for I'm waiting for inspiration. I'm waiting to figure out what I'm going to write. And uh, yeah. I, I wish I wish Jake had said, just sit your butt down at the chair and start writing, you know, right. just put your hands, put your hands on the keyboard or put your finger on the pen and just start writing. Yeah. It might be junk, but at least you're writing and you're that's the only way you're going to learn to be a writer is to actually, you know, write. You can't you're never going to learn how to write if you just read and you don't ever actually try to put uh, put words down on the page. And I, I wish I agree with you. I wish more writing themed episodes and movies would just, you know, tell people that, you know, it's it's not enough to just think about it. You know, the, the divine muse is not going to strike a lightning bolt right down your head and and get you to suddenly be a writer you've actually got to put the work in yeah the, yeah, uh, yeah a lot of writers don't like to hear that uh <laughs> don't like to hear it because they don't want to believe that writing is like any any other skill right you have to practice and practice and practice and do it yeah. you, you can't just be a a concert violinist, you know, overnight, you've got to put the work in. Right. I'm not feeling it. Just put it down. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Those stories can hurt the aspirations of baby writers. You know, somebody who doesn't want to write or somebody who wants to write, but doesn't feel like their muse is always there, you know, or whatever, they'll just pack it in because they think there's something wrong with them. But yeah, just stick with it. Yeah. The the best piece of advice I got was from a a, a writer I admire for years and years and years. It's Dean Wesley Smith. And he, Mm. he, he said, um, you know, writing is the best job in the world. Because we, we sit down in a room and, and we make stuff up and people, you know, read it and buy it. And there's no better job because you're, you're just sitting here making making up stories. You're, you're lying to people and they're and they're buying it. And he said, you know, if you want if you think that's hard work, you know, go go dig ditches for a living or, or go work in an emergency room for a living. That's hard work. That's yeah. I mean, we, we're, we're telling stories and we're you know maybe changing lives, but you know like no one's gonna die if we don't write a story or we don't get this next couple of pages written out or whatever. You know it's <laughs> it's all on us to get the story out, and if we're driven enough to do it, we'll do it. And uh, it, it's just fascinating to me when I when I read um, you know blogs and uh, discussion forums and stuff of writers who are just so full of the 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 angst and the fear of like oh, what if I write something and no one likes it and. Um, you know, how do I get started or when's the muse going to tell me what to do and where can I find time to write and all this stuff. And it's just, it's just amazing that it's the same conversations over and over and over again. Yeah. They just don't go away. I love those words by Dean Wesley Smith. I could use some more regular hours though. <laughs> A little nine to five wouldn't hurt. I hate getting up in the middle of the night to have to write something. <laughs> yeah. We just, you, you gotta, you gotta jot it down when it strikes. When it strikes right? Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, for a for a long time, I, I would have a, a, a little digital voice recorder on the bedside table oh, with yeah. me so that if I did have a dream or something and it's something inspiration struck me, I could, I could note it down and then go back to sleep. But at least I knew it. I hadn't lost it, you know? Yeah. Well, let's put our little spoiler warner, uh, warning in here because I wanted to talk about the final scene of the episode. So if you haven't seen it, and I hope you have, uh, we're going to spoil the final scene. Um, the ending, you know, whatever minor issues I have with the episode, the ending nails it and really gets me every time. Like even this time I thought, I'm watching this analytically. I'm just going to write things down. And they get to that last scene between Cisco and old Jake. And I'm like, okay, all right. <laughs> Yeah, I just, uh, I, I mean, I just watched, like, again, I just watched it to get ready for this uh, discussion, and uh, yeah, the tears were flowing. I think it's just the the music aside, because, of course, the music is always there to manipulate you into feeling something, but and it was well done, of course, but just the acting between Tony Todd, and especially in that, in that closing scene, the acting from Avery Brooks was just so amazing, because yeah. he's he's realizing that, 
that his son has, has devoted his entire life to bringing him back and has given up on everything else, you know, including his, 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 his wife and his the chance of grandchildren and all this stuff. Yeah. And, and just to understand the, the depth of the, of the love and the desperation that Jake had for him. I mean, it's just really powerful. And uh, again, like as a, as a fairly new dad, it's like, I have to think about that. Cause like, I, I see the adoration that my son has in his eyes every time he sees me and my wife and it's like oh my gosh there's so much responsibility knowing that right yeah and uh, i think avery brooks obviously just dr- drilled that performance home right at the very end there just realizing how much that uh, uh he means to his son just really colors his uh his relationship there yeah you know i've always wondered how old do trek people get um i think jake is near to 100 um when he passes away uh, he takes his own life, um, but it did seem like he was not doing well and possibly had a terminal illness. But in the future of this, you know, this 24th century, how old can people live to? Well, I think uh, uh, Admiral McCoy in Encounter Four Point was like 140, 139, he's, he's somewhere up there. Yeah, somewhere up there. So they're clearly living well into their early, um, you know, hundred and. 20s or so i mean obviously vulcans live longer and other species live different lifespans but uh i mean you figure 200 years from now they've got good good you know well i mean superior eating habits than what we have and different (laughs) exercise different (laughs) different attentions to uh different focuses on life because like when you're not quite so concerned about where your next paycheck's coming from you can focus on different things obviously so clearly we, we see a lot of examples in star trek where the lifespan is quite advanced from where we are now yeah 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 that's and of course i'm sure you could eat a uh if they've got synthahol they must have synth cheeseburgers uh in the future yeah. too so. <laughs> well you know uh, uh troy had no problem eating chocolate whenever she felt like it and yeah. seemed to have no ill effect on her yeah. so <laughs> there was the one time that she ordered a chocolate sundae and the replicator's like uh aren't you on a diet it's like this is uh <laughs> it, that's too high for your uh, caloric intake that uh, the setting um uh, something else i've always wondered it's come up on this show a time or two is what is the Federation's opinion on suicide as a social anarchy of sorts? I'm mm. guessing they're strongly committed to personal autonomy, but if you decided that you had enough or you had a terminal illness, where would they come down on that? That's an interesting question. I, I know that obviously the, the intent of the episode is that, uh, is that Jake is taking his own life to, uh, to cut the cord, as it were, so that Cisco can bounce back into his time timeline yeah. and, and live. Um, obviously, you know, Ben had a problem with it because obviously it's his son and he doesn't yeah. want his son to die, yeah. much less die to enable him to live. Yeah. Um, but as a society, I would imagine the Federation would would bend over backwards to do everything they could to give, give people the psychological and emotional support that they needed sure. in order to, to thrive and survive. Sure. Um, so and I'm not sure that I'd have to think about it. I'd have to do some digging to remember if <laughs> well, the episode really focused on suicide. I'm trying to remember if I've ever seen a Starfleet doctor assist a suicide or, or euthanize someone. Uh, actually, uh, uh, McCoy did in uh, Star Trek. Uh, Star Trek Five. He oh, mentioned that right. his, his father was uh, uh, dying from a terminal illness and asked asked McCoy to help him end his life. That's right. And uh, McCoy initially didn't want to do it refused to do it and then finally decided to do it. And then the kicker was two weeks later, they discovered a cure for yeah. his father's disease. Yeah. Um, so he had, he had had that guilt. So, um, so yeah, there is an obvious example from, from Canon. Yeah. Uh, and, where and they do address it. And it's funny because that doesn't really answer my question because, I mean, clearly he's confl- he should not have been his father's doctor. That's like a conflict of interest. Well, yeah, but for sure. Yeah. It's, that's, it's interesting. Um, it, it's such a cruel construction by the writer of this episode, too, because because of the function of this tether, he has to commit to this, you know, suicide act of suicide. Mm-hmm. And he was probably really close to natural death anyway. Um, so it's his choice to let go. But, you know, old Jake, who's a totally different character than young Jake at this point, you know, is gone forever. Yeah. But, you know, having rewatched the episode, I wasn't entirely convinced that. Uh, Jake was actually suffering from a terminal in- illness. I got the impression that he was intentionally, um, w- you know, wearing himself down and taking those injections to, oh, to like get him. Oh, a series of in- okay, okay. It's the impression I got. I mean, maybe maybe he took that injection uh, right before Melanie showed up, and then he was uh, like on the path to dying. But sure. I just got the impression that he was setting himself up to do that so that he would he would be ready to uh, interesting um, 
I just got the idea that it was you know, like a hypospray full of curare or something like that. But you're saying it was sort of like a quick sundowning, like a series of injections. I can see that. Yeah, that's the impression I got. But, you know, more now that I think about it, because he had mentioned that he would he was working on that collection of stories and he was going to write two more. But now there's no more time. So so maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to think of, go back and watch it again and <laughs> yeah. really dig into it yeah. to remember. But um, I mean, obviously, the, the the bottom line is that he he did decide to off himself so that his father could live. Yeah. And um, I mean, sure. I mean, obviously, Cisco had or Jake had no problem with it. Uh, ben Cisco had some problems with it. But society as a whole, you know, that's a that's a good question. They they probably look at it and see, well, that's sad and we're sympathetic. And what could we have done differently? And uh, I don't know what else you would do with that. I don't know either. We're going to need some uh, start. I need David Mack to write a book about <laughs> as a character <laughs> that uh, you know commits uh, assisted suicide. Uh, uh-huh. Well, that's not uh, happy stuff to talk about. Uh, as we uh, get to the end here, is there anything about the episode you wanted to say that we haven't covered yet? Uh, it, you know, again, 20 years later, it, the the opening of it, I mean, honestly, is a little contrived because you got the writer in there, and then like some of the line, some of the lines, some of the dialogue is really right right on the nose where they're kind of like, here's the problem. Here's the solution. Here's, here's the question. Here's the answer to carry the plot forward. And obviously you've got to do that to, to get the information out to the, uh, to the audience. But um, really, if you just let that go and just, you know, let Melanie be kind of the guide through the episode and just appreciate the, uh, the acting and the, and the, and the story and, and just the emotions that it brings up and, and the relationship between, between a parent and a, and a child is just, Really, really well done and not something you'd probably expect from DS9 because like I, I know I spend a lot of time on discussion forums, especially for, currently for the game where I'm, I'm trying to keep touch, trying to keep a thumb on the pulse of the gaming community and what they're looking for for the game. Yeah. But a lot of times the DS9 fans, uh, more, more recently DS9 fans are really more focused on the Dominion War and how how interesting that war is because we don't see a war that much in Star Trek. And think, okay, DS9's all all dark, and it's all about the war, and it's all about the shooting and the killing the Klingons and the Dominion, and all the fighting aspects to it. And and the Visitor is a great example of how DS9 can do more than just a, a war storyline. Yeah. And and that's why I really try to recommend it as an episode to watch uh, for DS9 because it it does present a great character piece and a character drama that has. Nothing to do really with with spaceships, nothing to do with a war, nothing to do with fighting or Klingons or Romulans or whatever. It's just it, it's a great introspective character piece about a father and a son and the extent one is willing to go to 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 help or you know to save the other one's life. Yeah. So great, great character piece. And I mean, again, like you were saying, the direction's top notch, the the acting, the writing. I mean, it just all came together into one great episode. Absolutely. So no uh, Jake Sisko war correspondent supplement coming out soon? Um, not specifically, no. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the, 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 the Gamma Quadrant sourcebook we have coming up in a couple of months. Uh, obviously covers the war from from beginning to end sure. and covers a lot about the Dominion, uh, but it, it doesn't specifically talk about Jake other than the fact that he's a, a war correspondent. I, I think we have a couple of references in there to it, but obviously a standalone product entirely focused on Jake, not <laughs> not realistic. <laughs> I want to roll up a war correspondent character now. There you go. Let's talk My Space Dad Can Beat Up Your Space Dad. Who's your favorite captain and why? I got to I yeah, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to be a homer and a stand and stick with the DS9 and Ben Cisco's the the top captain for me. Sure. And I think because there's so much there's so many uh angles to him that that are interesting that you don't see from like uh Kirk or Cisco or I'm sorry Kirk and Picard and uh and Janeway and and Archer it's just the, the fact that he's a he's a he's a widower and he's a father and he's a Starfleet commander and then a Starfleet captain and then he's he's also got the weight of being the uh, emissary of the Bajorans on top of that yeah. like and how do you it, there's been plenty of episodes where he has to balance you know am I a Starfleet officer or am I the religious emissary to the Bajoran people how do I balance that out and then you know one point Admiral Ross says okay well it's time for you to pick one or the other so what's it going to be and just the, there's so many facets to his character that they get to explore over the course of the series um and and so much of the war is entirely on his shoulders, right? So yeah. I think I think Cisco is the captain for me for sure. All right. How about you? Oh boy! Uh, every once in a while, <laughs> ask ask me that, and it changes often. Uh, I usually say Kirk. 
Um, uh-huh. Just because, uh, as many people have said, it's like, you know, you never forget your first captain. Like, that's sort of where yeah. I entered in. Um, but more and more, I've been um, thinking about uh, of Janeway mm-hmm. and um, how I think that in a lot of ways, um, she's sort of like a female version of Kirk um, in that she is uh, intrepid in, in the way that he is. Uh, she doesn't have a lot of time for uh, bureaucrats or bullies uh, like he does. And also, I just appreciate, you know, what she did in the um, action of the story, which was not give up and bring this crew of hers home and go through all the adversity and hardships. And she's kind of wry, and and I like that. And I love coffee, too. (laughs) (laughs) Now that we've reached the end of the show, you'll receive a commission and the rank of ensign. What department on the ship do you work in? I've got to stick with a, a, a long time running joke in my in my Star Trek <laughs> groups campaign, okay. and uh, I would be an ensign in turbo lift control. Ah, okay, all right. <laughs> it's a it's a throwaway reference from one TNG episode where there's some sort of disaster on the ship, and and uh, <laughs> and Picard calls down to turbo lift control to figure out what's going on. Right. And that was a long discussion in our group. Like, what does this guy or per, what does this person in turbo lift control do? Are they just watching? The different turbolifts go from point A to point B. Are they like, um, are they responsible for for directing the traffic? Like, are they like a subway manager where they're directing the traffic of the different trains? Right, or, right. you know, what does that job entail? So, <laughs> so obviously that would be part of the operations division. So probably a, like a low level engineer sure. of some type. Okay, and of course the job has its ups and downs. Uh, uh, yeah, and right. sideways. All right. Uh, yeah, and you're sideways. Yes. Well, Anson Johnson, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can at, at EISTPod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Uh, I am on uh, Twitter, uh, scribenetti.com. Uh, you can find me if you're into the role-playing game at all. I'm all over the place on uh, on uh, uh, Reddit, medifius.com comms forums facebook elsewhere i'm also on some writing channels so not hard to find yeah and absolutely uh listeners if you're interested in role-playing games and star trek you should check out the manifius game it is, it really is great thank you and aaron thank you so much for having me on board i really appreciate well, it thanks again for joining me and we're signing off until the next mission hailing frequencies closed it's on your mind.